Welcome back to the Magic of the Spheres podcast. This is Sabrina Monarch, and this is a show about spiritual lifestyle and personal evolution. I'm an evolutionary astrologer, a clairvoyant, and a thought leader, and I started this podcast to have eclectic and impactful conversations about astrology as well as all things spiritual and personal development. Hi, I'm coming to you from high elevation in the Sacred Valley, Peru. Despite my best efforts, I'm a little bit out of breath. I have a new podcast interview to share with you, this time with astrologer Meg Kane. Over the summer, Meg was offering Dionysus fifth house astrology readings. And I found this completely enchanting in of itself because we have Dionysus, this god of revelry and festivity and ecstasy. And then the fifth house, which is associated with joy, play, creativity, and pleasure. But I also found this reading enchanting for me personally, as I'd been connecting deeply with Greek myths this summer, especially Ariadne, Dionysus, and Semele. I really appreciate that Meg created an invitation for so many people to consider their fifth house in new ways and to also connect with Dionysus. In this episode, we discuss the myths and the fifth house, and we expand the theme of pleasure, joy, and creativity beyond its most lighthearted associations, like shouldn't this just be fun, and explore it as a deeply transformative and confronting force as well. We only need to think of something like pregnancy and childbirth as a form of creativity to gain a metaphor that the creative process works us and has the power to change us. Perhaps having a more expansive view of the spectrum of creative process can remind us that creativity is messy, awakening, connects us to life, is not uncomplex, and is healing. If you've been enjoying this podcast and have something to say about it, I would love to read your review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes. Take a screenshot of your review before you click submit and email it to me at sabrina at monarchastrology.com and I'll send you a gift, a collection of videos about creating and elevating your reality, which includes a video on the mystical dimension of Leo and play as a primordial force of creativity that is behind what later became formal ritual and religion, the deeper origin and force which we can tap into to change our lives. Dragon of the Moon and Evolutionary Astrology Initiation is close approaching. This is a four-month container to learn the fundamentals of evolutionary astrology and how to read charts from the perspective of the soul's multi-lifetime journey and the core themes for this life. It is learning a language that connects us directly to the archetypes and planets, which are alive and tend to reveal more of themselves to those who seek. It's also learning a language that connects us more profoundly to our very own soul, that deeper essence inside of us that is deeper than our current incarnation's identity and personality, but merged with this very life on purpose. The course includes recorded transmissions and weekly live calls to discuss the material. A deeply sincere and magical and lit group of individuals assemble, and I'm already so excited about this cohort. And my brilliant TA, Aliza Rude, who has been on this podcast, and myself are available to talk with you throughout the class about your questions and reflections and integration. I learned through studying closely with my first teacher and being able to have conversations, so it's the spirit of how I teach as well. While what we explore is incredibly deep, all the way to Pluto, Lord of the Underworld, key to understanding the undercurrents that run through us in our lives, the insights of this class often also spark so much joy and intimacy with life for my students. I'm leaving the link in the show notes for you to learn more about Dragon of the Moon, 
read student testimonials. This is the Evolutionary Astrology Intensive, which has been running since 2018, now under a new name. And you can also apply using that link. Click the link in the show notes to do all of that. And you can also email me at sabrina at monarchastrology.com if you have a personal question about the class as it pertains to your particular learning goals and intentions. I set up video calls with applicants, so that is also a space for us to discuss what you'd like to create and grow in your world in relationship to studying soul-centered astrology. And then a little bit about Meg before we begin. Meg is a consulting astrologer, herbalist, and writer. Their practice is rooted in an animist, relational approach that tends to the ties between people, their bodies, the land, and stars. With the help of traditional astrology and vitalist herbalism, Meg seeks to honor the wisdom already inside each person and help them remember how interconnected they are to the living, enchanted world all around them. Meg is collaborating on a workshop with astrologer Amaya Rourke about Dionysus and the fixed stars, so stay tuned for that. And I'll leave you to our conversation now. Welcome everyone. I'm here with Meg Kane, astrologer and herbalist. Um, we've been in community together for a while and recently I was drawn deeper into orbit with your work because of a Dionysus fifth house offering that you created, which stopped me in my tracks. Like I'd been thinking about the myths of Ariadne, Semele, Dionysus this summer, but also like Dionysus fifth house just felt so sexy to me. And I was like, who wouldn't want a Dionysus fifth house reading? Like say no more, I'm in. Um, And I had a really awesome experience and also thought that it was a great example of what astrologers can do and are getting to do right now in terms of coming up with really innovative reading offerings. Um, So I'm so glad to be talking with you. It's been a while coming. Um, I'd love to hear from you a little bit about your practice, like what you draw on and what influences you Mm -hmm. um, to get started. Well, thank you so much for having me. Um, Oh, the practice question. I feel like, so I um, feel like that answer is always changing for me. Um, So right now, my practice, I see clients one-on-one with a a variety of different readings and consultations for herbalism. Um, But my own practice is really rooted in um, the earth, which is funny to me because I feel like with astrology, it's really easy to forget this planet. But um, I came to astrology in earnest. I had known about it through a variety of things, but it was only after I fell in love with herbalism that I actually fell deeply in love with astrology. Um, once you work with plants, I had every intention of being this like very rationalist herbalist where I was like, I'm going to focus on um, medical studies and I'm not going to get into all this woo stuff. Um, I still read medical studies, but um, the woo was unavoidable. And so uh, once you fall in love with the aliveness of this planet, it's hard not to look up and realize how animate everything is. And, And that made astrology, which had felt kind of abstract to me at that point, feel very tangible and here and present. And so um, my practice is rooted in that perspective as well as um, myth too. I think story is a huge part of what astrology has to offer us. And um, I've always really 
loved myth. And I think that it's an interesting tangle of story and God and history. And um, it's just the right kind of like knotted, difficult thing that I, I would get excited about. So that's that's usually what I'm bringing into my practice, in my personal practice and my um, astrological practice. I love what you're saying about how your connection to the earth naturally led to moving beyond the terrestrial. Um, because, yeah, I think that when, you know, with astrologers, we're spending a lot of time really communing with the planets and having such a, like, transpersonal experience, even with mm-hmm. them. And then to, you know, get to the soil right here on this planet. There's a lot of magic and connection and mystery happening here too. Um, what inspired you to start to focus on the fifth house or create an offering related to it? Yeah, I mean, I kept seeing it in practice. Um, in my client work, people kept coming to me and needing to talk about the fifth house. They didn't always say like, hey, Meg, can we talk about the fifth house? They didn't necessarily say it like that. But we would end up talking about pleasure and creative practice and joy. And often it wasn't like, this all is going great in my life right now. It was often that there was actually a lot of struggle here. And then the chart would sort of highlight the fifth as part of what was going on. And in my own study of the fifth house, there was so much focus on the positive side you know, like Venus rejoices here. All the significations are like some of the best stuff of life, you know? Um, But I think what I was finding in my client work was it's way more complicated than that. And we actually, I think between our culture and, well, it's mostly our culture. (laughs) Like there's just a lot of pressure to um, not be in that space. It's not a place of productivity necessarily, although there can be products that come out of it. And I also think joy is really hard to come by right now. And um, where there's even like guilt about feeling joy um, alongside so much grief and and difficulty. So um, it felt like a really important place to spend time in. And I'll also say that my Saturn return took place in my fifth house. Um, And uh, so that gave me a lot of time to think about that house as well from a like malefic perspective, which I didn't realize that informed it so much until I started seeing it in my client work, you know, like a year or two after that. But I can look back now and be like, oh, yes, that was that was setting things up for doing this kind of work. So. That's how it started, at least. It's morphed since then, but that's the beginning. Okay, yeah. I was going to ask, too, what it is about you, you feel, that was calling in this fifth house topic in terms of, I think, when we're getting this reflection from our clients, it can start to give us an understanding of, like, our medicine that we offer, even if it's not something we set out with, like, a mission plan and we wrote it all out and we knew, you know, but it's, like, this emergent discovery of, like, this is what people are coming to me about? Such a good question. I, um, 
I tend to make offerings about things that I, it's not because I've come all the way through it and feel like I'm an expert in them. It's more like, I am currently struggling with this. Do you want to walk alongside me while we do this together? Um, and for me, the fifth house has always been a challenge. I, um, the, the idea of like, can you loosen up, like have more fun? Can you just be less serious and put the work down and have, just go have some, I know, letting loose. I don't know what that means. That's hard for me. And I also have a complex relationship with the idea of being creative or not, whether like I'm an artist or not. Um, my, yeah, so my own path has been like a, a, a funky fifth house experience. And I assume that that comes into the story of why I ended up doing this. Um, on the Dionysian side of it, um, I have been just completely fixated on Ariadne since I can remember. I don't even know when it started. And then later on, I when I started getting like deeper into um, astrology, I learned that the asteroid of Dionysus is exactly conjunct my sun. And um, there are other things like my fixed stars are super Dionysian. Um, and I've always been really interested in their story and which led me more into Dionysus. And then with the fifth house, I saw so much overlap between sort of what they're both about. Um, and it felt like a my, my Dionysian practice, my private practice was getting stronger. And so it just sort of felt like on the one hand, I have these fifth house sticky stories that I think make me able to talk about the, the breadth of this house. But I also think Dionysus just like decided I was doing this. A lot of this work, I was like, are you sure? Like, I don't think I'm the one, I'm the unfun one. Why are, why am I going to be offering a fifth house reading? Um, but it wasn't, it didn't feel entirely up to me. So. Okay. This is really cool to hear because I felt like when you announced the offering and we're talking about it, it just had this essence or energy to me that I felt where I was like, this is the real thing. Like I need to be part of this. You know, it felt, you know, and I also didn't necessarily know your personal connection to it. Um, I'm finding out now, <laughs> but the way that you were describing it felt really um, seductive and inviting and like curiosity inducing. Um, and so I think it's cool too. Like I also have, um, Chiron in my fifth house. So I understand like sometimes I think about like heavy planets like Chiron or Saturn or Pluto in the fifth house and really see how this area of life that's related to joy and playfulness can actually be so intense, mm -hmm. you know, and how, you can find humor, say, in like the darkest moments or like there is a a grittiness or a darkness that can be in that space. Also, contrary to maybe a simple idea of fun being fun and joy being joy, like I think the heart itself is like, you know, being open hearted seems so beautiful and lovely, but there's all these like crusty layers over the heart sometimes and like heart opening can be so painful or involve so much grief too that I think the matter of the fifth house is way more complex than it just being fun. I absolutely agree. And one of the reasons why I found Dionysus such a helpful figure to think 
with when thinking about the fifth house is because you have that frenzy, the trance, the ecstatic, the catharsis. Um, but you also have, you know, that the stories of Dionysus are of a tearing, like a rending of the body and a, and a, a dying away and re being reborn again. Um, he's one of these living and dying gods. We've got a bunch of them, but he's one of them. And I feel like that's such an important part of whenever we talk about joy and creativity that we include what's really painful and the way that making art, falling in love, like desiring something, anything, like something for your life, some, another person, several people, whatever. Like you are desiring the earth, like desiring communion with the divine, whatever it is, how aching that can be and how much it can tear us apart and reconstitute us. And if the fifth house doesn't include that, then I, I don't think it's the fifth house. Like, I think it has to be all of it. And so, um, yeah, that's, that's part of why I have found this so potent. Wow. So maybe before getting into the fifth house, um, and a lot of the listeners will also have a basic concept too, at least of what the fifth house is. I'd love to open up the myths of Dionysus mm -hmm. um, and maybe also like one myth that I feel really connected to is like the simile, you know, like Dionysus, his origin mm -hmm. um, as like part of his story too, I think. Um, so maybe, yeah, where you feel inspired to start us off. Oh, so the origin of Dionysus is multiple. Um, He's in the Orphic hymns, they describe him as, I think, thrice born. Um, and it is, I think it is three. You could argue it's four. Um, we could probably do an hour on just his origin stories. So I'll, I'll zip through the main ones. Um, but, and we'll focus on Summer because I know how important she is to you and she's important to me too. Um, his sort of first birth, was actually between Zeus and Persephone. So um, there's a myth that Demeter went to see a diviner who told her that there was going to be a god coming for her daughter. And so she hid her in a cave and it was guarded by snakes. And Zeus turned himself into a snake, entered the cave, and from that experience, I don't really know how to describe it because in myth, these types of unions are complicated um but from that union came Zagreus who was an underworld deity who is sort of Dionysus the first it's his original form and he's incredibly important to the myths um but he's the one that the titans tear apart and um there's a whole thing about him shape-shifting in order to try to get away from them there's like so so much of the mystery rites are about that moment of being torn apart by the Titans. Um, and then his heart is saved and Zeus basically puts the heart in a drink that then Semele drinks and becomes impregnated with Dionysus so that he is reborn. And so um, I can pause there and we can talk about that or I can move on to the Semele piece, you let me know. Cause I can just do this for a while. So I, I probably <laughs> should check in. No, yeah, I, 
something, you know, as you're talking about being ripped apart, it just has me thinking about desire and how um, desire is extremely confronting. Like some of the things we desire, we're like, cool, yeah, I'm, I totally want that. Other things we desire um, take us under in some kind of way, or it's shocking or it's confronting to really be like, that's what my soul wants, <laughs> you know? And like when we actually move toward our desire, fulfill desires, I find that they have this quality of um, like ripping us apart, you know? Like sometimes it's like beautiful and like simple or like just like, ah, like so nice, you know? But other times it's, you know, say even like, yeah, getting like a really important uh, professional milestone or something that you've worked years toward and like getting there I mean, there's something about the way the identity can shift or like entering a relationship and like really deeply bonding with someone after being single for a period of time. It's like moving toward our desire can change us. Um, and I think the more intense and the more vulnerable the desire, the more it has that kind of shredding quality. Yeah, I agree. And something that I've written about elsewhere is like how these seemingly positive, which I think is like a sort of part of the fifth house. Um, and honestly, any of, I would think that the 11th might have. Or literally pieces. having a kid too. Like yeah. Some, you know. yeah, I mean, that is a perfect example. Um, and I, I, I think that, so, oh, I have so much I want to say to you right now. This is very, <laughs> this is very exciting. Um, the, there is something about even what is seemingly objectively positive being incredibly difficult in moments. Like there are things like getting what you want is doesn't always feel like it's one shade of an emotion. There's so much else going on. So even when the good things of the fifth house happen, it doesn't mean it feels safe or possible or like you aren't coming apart in some way um and also sometimes the things that have to do with the fifth house are just genuinely difficult it's not like this i'm overwhelmed i'm stretching i'm finding a new capacity um it, it can be just no it's really really painful and i think we have to include that in the stories we tell about the fifth house so that we can include them in our own stories versus sort of separating them out as like, they don't belong. Um, I have to feel ashamed of that. I'm, I'm doing pleasure wrong. I'm doing creativity wrong. I'm doing joy wrong. Um, and so there's certainly that piece. Um, there's something else that you said that made me think about some part of the myth, but it'll have to come back to me. Okay. Um... There's another version of the myth with simile that is, I guess, the one that I'm familiar with. Mm -hmm. I wasn't actually familiar with multiple Dionysus. Mm -hmm. and Yeah. Um, but this one is about simile as like a lover of Zeus. Yes. And like asking to see his full form. Yes. Would you want to tell the story? Sure. So um, simile... Um, becomes a lover of Zeus. And while I was saying that like the unions in myth are complicated to say the least, um, 
this is not one of those stories. It's clear in all the tellings of this myth that it is a consensual relationship and Zeus returns multiple times. Um, and at some point that why this happens shifts in the myth. Sometimes it's Semele's greedy, jealous sisters. Sometimes it's Hera disguised as someone else or Hera egging the sisters on or there's, but someone conspires to say like, Semele, you don't know who you're sleeping with. So he always comes in the night. You can't see. And it's kind of got like an aero-psyche vibe. Yeah. Um, and, or maybe he's in some versions, he's like coming not in his full God form. And she's kind of like, I'm pretty sure I'm sleeping with Zeus. Like, I'm pretty sure that's what's happening. And they're like, well, you should really find out for sure. So they're in this moment of rapture um, and Zeus says something like, I'll give you anything you want. And she's like, well, I want to actually see you. And he's so upset because he knows this is the end. And he reveals himself in his full form. And of course, she like goes up in flames because mortals cannot actually have that much divinity revealed to them. And at the time she was pregnant with Dionysus and um, Zeus rescues the child fetus thing and actually puts it in his thigh um, to gestate, which I think queers Zeus pretty beautifully. Um, not that he needed a ton of that, but it's it's nice for me. And so um, the thigh becomes a womb and um, eventually he births Dionysus. But I think some of the one of the pieces that I think is so important about Semele, and there's more to Semele because at some point Dionysus actually fetches her from the underworld and she ascends into Mount Olympus as a goddess. Um, but what I really love about the Semele piece is I think it's that yearning for the divine to like be that close. And to, I think there's a version where she's a silly woman who doesn't think and doesn't realize she's going to be incinerated or there's a version where we say no that is what it is to be completely subsumed by a divine experience and in the versions where she becomes a goddess um she becomes thayam which i don't know if i'm pronouncing correctly but it's the goddess of trance and frenzy so she's like the one who is with us in those moments of trance states um some versions have it that Ariadne is the one who becomes Thion, but I like it as some like Ariadne's mm. already a goddess in her own right. She doesn't need another version of herself. But um, yeah, so I don't know if there's anything you want to add to that version, anything that you love about it that I might have left out. Definitely. Like I, I was really touched by this, like as I started to, I encountered Semele among a bunch of other asteroids because of um, Michael J. Morris's um, yeah. asteroid talk. And so I was including, you know, and starting to study all of these different asteroids. And there was this week or two where Semele was appearing in all of my client charts. And I had forgotten, I thought that I looked up my own asteroids with this list of 60, you know, asteroids, but I hadn't. And so by the end of this like period of Semele just being everywhere and I'd researched her and I felt really compelled by her myth, I found out she's conjunct my moon. <laughs> I was Amazing. like, okay, that's why she's everywhere. But one of the versions of the myth or the tellings that I had encountered was like 
a little bit of a back and forth between her and Zeus when, you know, he says he promises to give her anything she wants. She asks to see his like full form or like really see him. And he's like, oh, like, please don't, you know, make me do that. Like you'll incinerate. And she's like, no, I really want it. Mm. Um, And then she does incinerate. And that touched me because as I was starting to connect more with Semele and myself and in my friends who have prominent Semele's also, I feel like there's this deep hunger for life, even if we know that it will hurt us. Um, And it reminds me just of different times in my life where I've been hungry for an initiation, even though I knew that I maybe didn't have the foundations or capacity to receive it without going a little bit like insane to some degree. (laughs) And that that's kind of part of my own personal narrative. And with age still, you know, in my youth, but like Saturn return, I found a lot more capacity to be able to receive big experiences and hold more energy in my body. But even like the young version of me would know like this experience is too big for me, but I want it anyway. Mm -hmm. And then I would go, you know, to hell, go to the underworld and have to like find my way back up. Um, And that myth gave me a deeper understanding for what put me in that position in some sense to feel like, yeah, maybe this is too much or something, but how can I say no to this big adventure or initiation? And I feel like Semele just kind of has that, like, it's almost like a fatal flaw or something. Mm-hmm. Yet in the full arc of the story, she does get initiated. Yeah. So I think there's something about it. I think it's interesting too, like Psyche has a really similar story as you pointed out. And she also is kind of totally destroyed and bereft over her connection to Eros and Eros leaving after she finds out who he is. And she goes through all these trials to then be reinitiated and elevated to goddess status from being a mortal. Mm -hmm. And there's some pattern I'm sensing of like the female heroic journey, which is something around learning how to basically like hold or receive more energy in one's body go through this whole underworld trial and come back up Mm -hmm. um, as opposed to say going out into the world and like slaying (laughs) external (laughs) things and it's very gendered I guess as I'm talking about it but it's something that I've thought a lot about in terms of like this feminine hero's journey arc being about reconciling with big experiences and the emotional impact of them what you're That's saying. a lot. But. No, no. It's, <laughs> um, these topics are a lot. I, what that makes me think about is um, Semele being so connected to um, this sort of, um, looking for my words, the Dionysian myths in general and how there is um, a, the Dionysian energy is huge. Like it, it's not just this moment of Semele and Zeus, it's also who comes up out of that. And, and if I think about Persephone and Zeus and Dionysus, they, they're like Zagreus child has a much um, more underworld, um, he's called like the mild one, although he's also a hunter of souls. There's like a, there's a, it's a whole thing, but 
the the god that we tend to think of when we think about Dionysus as this like you know this god who's never alone who's always in procession with leopards and maenads and satyrs and um the symbols and the drums and the flutes and all of this this like cacophony um and the dancing and the trance and the frenzy all of this is the specifically the Dionysus who comes out of Semele and Zeus's union and I think that's really important when we think about how Semele, how Semele is holding or unable to hold all of that energy, um, that we see that story continue in the Dionysian myths. Um, because part of what you're ex experiencing when you experience Dionysus is the current of life itself. Like that's how big it is. Um, we There's a lot of like, Dionysus is the god of wine, and that is true, but ultimately that's just one of the ways we understand him. It's so much bigger, and in fact, he was the god of mead first and other fermented beverages. It's like, oh, it's more about the fermentation, which is a different topic, but my point is that um, the scholar um, Carl Kareni talks about the difference between bios and zoe, which are two different words for life in ancient Greece, ancient Greek, sorry. Um, and bios is my individual life and your individual life. And zoe is the life running through everything. It's the indestructible life. And so even while Semele is destroyed, part of what she's experiencing is the, like the glory of Zeus. But I also like to imagine it as like Dionysus is in that scene also. Dionysus is already in her womb. And so um, I, I think that like this is part of what ecstatic trance, dance, music feels like is that huge moment. And it doesn't, it can be destructive. There, there's a way in which it, that can it always threatens to become out of control in a way that might feel not safe, but it's also that um, it's that kind of like connection to everything, to all the people that you're with dancing with or whatever it is that you're doing that, that, that big, there isn't a bigger connection is my point. I love that you bring in, you know, Dionysus being in the scene or like he is the third thing that is being created from this union. And in that, I think is a, it's just giving me a sense that the call to adventure or the opening to like literally just open to so much life mm -hmm. and the way that, yeah, we're shredded apart by that experience I'd also been reading about Dionysus this summer. Um, you know, it would be way too long of a story <laughs> to like tell here in this conversation, but the Semele, Ariadne, Dionysus, like the three myths came into my life with such intense synchronicity and like the way they moved through or it's like they were embodying their archetypes in this way where I'm just like, yeah, you know, they're talking to you, like the reading came through you, like Dionysus was, here's the assignment, you know, and <laughs> it was profound. But when I was reading about Dionysus um, from Jeanette Paris, she was talking about how, 
experiences of profound ecstasy, um, people sometimes like the risk of, say, like a really big drug experience, a really big psychedelic experience, or even, you know, when people have these really extreme um, psychological states and um, the difference, say, of like a person's deep ecstatic opening being something that they can contain or integrate versus it becoming a full-blown psychosis that they don't know how to come back from. And this sense that like deep in kind of the Dionysian frontier, sometimes people have a hard time finding their way back, which makes it interesting that Dionysus is, you know, this counterpart or is married to Ariadne, who has this particular myth and skill of getting out of the maze or getting out of the labyrinth. So I think about one kind of remedy for completely losing it or completely going into a psychotic state from being open to trance and whatnot is to be able to trace your way back out and back into, say, like normal everyday life. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's, um, I've, I've noticed even in sort of like guided trance work that the teachers I have found there, there's, I think it's really common to have, um, if it's like a, if there's a visual, to imagine yourself going like there's like a journey to the journeying place and a journey back from the journeying place, which reminds me a lot of what you're talking about. Um, and I would also say that in addition to, you know, once Ariadne and Dionysus are united, um, they're never without other people. They're not just like a, a couple. They're like a this moving festival all the time, wherever they're going. And I think that's part of it too, is like doing um, like ecstatic devotional work by yourself is almost like it's possible, but part of it feeling, um, it's almost like an oxymoron to talk about ecstatic work being contained, but it having a container is how it's often done when it is done by a community. Um, and I think that's part of it too, is that there is this sense of you're not alone in it. Um, and you have certain structures in place that make the, the frenzy possible. That makes sense. Yeah, that would give us a good fifth house, eleventh house, yeah, connection. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, maybe yeah. Here we may dip back into Ariadne because I don't think mm-hmm. we there's more that definitely could be said about her. Oh, but, for sure. Um, connecting all this, like, how did you weave that into the fifth house? What were some of the like connections that you found between um? the the myths or the 11th and the fifth piece the myths Mm, yeah yes um so one of the things i realized pretty early on that trying to weave the myths in and do the delineation and also um, do this other piece that i'll talk about in a second was too much so i more tried to work with dionysus as a framing for how I think about the fifth house. And we would talk about that at the front of any reading. And then if his myths and imagery came through throughout, then I would allow, like that would 
come through and I would talk about them. But where it really came up for me was um, usually in the middle or toward the end of a reading. Um, it's not that we would be in trance together because I don't, I, I'm not like skilled at helping someone do that, but I wanted to be in a state of imaginative play with the person that I'm having, I'm doing the reading with. And there is a kind of labyrinth experience of feeling your way through your fifth house as a space, um, as like a physical sort of dream logic location. And um, I was really afraid of doing that in sessions. I'd never done that before with anyone. And, um, or I hadn't done it as a reader. Um, I would actually say that Joe O'Neill's 12th house reading it does a very similar thing. Um, and I'm sure we're not the only ones, but there was this um, feeling our way through a physical space and trying to imagine it and pulling it into being that I have found to be so meaningful to clients. And it's something that they can take with them after the session, but it's also, it has that kind of um, liminal, you're here, but you're not here experience. I don't know if you want to speak more to that, but um, I think yeah. that's, it's sort of like a, a it, it's not directly Dionysian in, in, in like a mythic way, but there is a current running through that feels very much from him. And I would not have done it on my own. <laughs> so, yeah, I think I don't even really want to give details because I would encourage people to experience it for themselves. Yeah. Um, but the way you set up the reading it was dreamlike and there was this invitation quality to it to really participate. Um, and then from that space of what was generated at the beginning of the reading, you wove it into the chart. And then, um, yeah, you helped me see kind of like what feeds my creativity and like see the pattern or see the energetic, almost like mechanism of it yeah. in my chart. And then have this whole like, oh, I, I do understand that system. And I've understood that system throughout my life, but um, I don't know if I'd ever seen someone pointed out to me through my chart and something about it clicked where it became almost more like, um, oh, this is directly how I can feed my creativity. And this is how I can also rest and just like revel in it um, and slow down the production when I'm already abundant. And when it starts to get dry, here's how I can like, get my creativity going again and that knowledge is really powerful like I think you know I'll have that forever there's something about like the way that you created this dreamlike state and then got into the chart that was really um an experience and very inspiring oh, I'm so happy to hear that um as you were describing that it also made me think about the the festival nature of, um, and this is because I've just read a book all about festivals, so it's very in the front of my head. But um, I think it's really important that this reading, I feel this way about all my readings, but especially this one, that it is really um, co-creative and collaborative because there is a way in which um, the 
the festival nature of Dionysus as a deity is about everyone participating. It isn't a spectacle where you're seated and you're watching someone else dance. Everyone is included. And so to have it be, I'm the astrologer and I'm going to sit over here and tell you all the things about you and you can just listen. Um, I would never have a session like that anyway, but especially this one, it was really, really important to me that there was um, a lot of like, dreaming together that we do in the in the time that we have so I'm really happy that that came through for you definitely um so for the fifth house um let's like open that up like you know it's about joy creativity like how else would you describe it so my my way into the fifth house was actually to go to like the most, like the earliest signification that I have learned, which is um, babies. And for me, that's not a very helpful, like it's very limited for the fifth house to think about it only as human children. Um, and but what I liked about it was that it was about fertility. I just decentered it from humans and made it about the land. How does the land teach us about creativity and desire and that reaching brimming greenness inside of all of us and since Dionysus is among other things a vegetation god it was really helpful for me to imagine the different this is exactly what you were talking about with like our reading together is looking at not just how can I be more creative how can I do more output but to understand the rhythms of one's own joy and creativity and allowing space for both the um grapes on the vine in the heat as well as the cold dark quiet cellar where the wine is fermenting where it looks like nothing is happening but actually so much is happening and both of those parts of the process of our joy of our pleasure of our creativity being essential components so when i think about the fifth house i'm thinking about fertility and um, eroticism defined to be including sex, but also broader than sex. Um, and all of the, the pleasures and difficulties and mess that come from this part of our life. That's such a beautiful way of putting it, um, because it's something that I think a lot about is our preferences of like being on the up versus being on the down, yeah. you know, like when life is like really beautiful and it's springtime and summer energy versus when we're in winter or autumn. And I think that um, that's one that I've struggled with because I prefer the spring and summer energy, but I found in my life that clinging onto it or trying to make it happen all the time literally just didn't work and that not knowing how to relate to the other part of the cycle would prolong the other part of the cycle anyway um, that there's these processes that need to happen and that part of the rhythm is like saying yes to all of it um, and that's just been a huge one to contend with. And it's shown me actually a lot about what we were talking about at the beginning about how it's not all joy or joy isn't always just like so lighthearted, you know, that like to be, you know, very open hearted people have a relationship with grief and disappointment as well. Yeah. And they have to sit alongside each other so much of the time too. They're, they're, um, 
so often we're feeling them at the same exact time, which can feel really confusing if you think you're only supposed to feel one at, the, at a time. It can feel like inappropriate or wrong or um, like the joy is sullied in some way or you're, there's something broken. And not that brokenness is bad, but that feeling of like shame around brokenness, I think is really what I'm talking about. To be haunted by the good, the pressure of a memory, an awakening that requires that everyday life become elevated. What if I don't know how to get there? What if I don't believe that it will happen? What if I'm comparing my whole life to a spark of a moment? The pressure Hungry Ghosts of Paradise is an audio novella shared in full to Magic of the Spheres podcast by Sabrina Monarch. Listeners were enchanted, shed tears, and found this novel to be an act of soul retrieval. It is a novel for Eros, a project of alchemizing grief, and a tale of tragic love that will take you all the way up and all the way down, and to a secret third portal on the other end. Find the chapters between episodes 170 and 206 of Magic of the Spheres podcast, or see the link in the show notes for the Spotify playlist organizing all the chapters in one place. To a spark of a moment, the pressure of the good. It's reminding me like there was a time when. It's like a longer story again, these things, and with like context, but I was in a phase of my life where I was really cultivating peak experience and joyfulness on purpose. And I was practicing these different like spiritual or metaphysical techniques that involved the awareness that like, instead of having a reaction to actual circumstances or what, you know, what we're choosing to focus on to just generate emotions that you feel like on purpose. And like, I was like changing my own brain chemistry and like doing all this stuff. Um, so I was in this like really intensified practice of joy. And I found that the gatekeeper, every time I wanted to get like higher or go deeper into that state was a profound amount of like guilt mm. and just like feeling of the people that I didn't feel who could come with me. Right. Or, wow like ancestral patterns or something. And um, the way I related to it at the time was very like blaze ahead Aries, like this is, I'm going for joy, like, you know, and like focusing on that. It's become more complex since then. Um, but I had just found it interesting that that was such a literal dynamic um, at that moment in time. Um, and that Back then, I chose to compartmentalize a little bit of like, I didn't have the tools necessarily to alchemize that grief, but I was like, I'm going to put you aside for a moment and I'm going to go have fun and I'll come back to you when I have the tools or I would like ask the angels to transmute it for me. Um, and then the time came, Saturn return in the 12th house where I had time or like way more tools really for alchemizing grief or being with grief. Um, but that energetic pattern, I just... You know, I think it's universal. I read about it in books or hear people talk about it. 
And yet I think it's very underappreciated at the same time because it's such a, it's almost like a spell. Um, it's an energetic pattern that people are inside of. It is a spell. Um, as you were talking, I was thinking about the square from like the, between like the eighth and the fifth. Um, I also, um, I see the guilt thing all the time and something that, um, feels so difficult to reach for, um, or I, I find it difficult to reach for. I don't want to speak for an abstract general everyone. Um, I sometimes find it difficult to reach for joy when I'm in like any kind of grief spiral. Um, and it can be really personal or more of like a global, like um, like climate grief, earth grief stuff, for example, among many others. Um, and it feels irresponsible or something. Like it feels like, how can you reach for joy right now? Except that there is so much like historical evidence of um, people coming together in joy being one of the greatest threats to the status quo. Um, and when we, we forget that at our own peril, how critical imagination is for changing our world, whatever size micro macro you pick, like you, you can, the, the fifth house is far from frivolous. It is what makes life worth living um, with all of its thorny stickiness alongside the good stuff. And it, the guilt that we feel um, is, is real and is part of the experience. But I also think that um, depends on where some of the guilt is coming from. I think it's all a little bit different, but the, the guilt around like what um, do, do I get to feel this right now is um, I think misses, is understandable and misses so much of the, the um, power to tear apart that is in the fifth house. Right. It's not always you um, that's coming apart. <laughs> yeah, that's so beautiful. Um, the way that you put that. And it has me thinking about when we're attempting to create and enact change in our own lives or in our communities that it's like, where's the foundation of what we're coming from? What paradigm do we exist in? And if we haven't found the way to imagine or like enter the new worlds that we want to create, we're still inside of the old one or our reaction or reactivity to the old. And I think of joy and peak experience and ecstasy as really an opening into some entirely new world. You know, I think that having people have profound realizations in dark nights of the soul and in like total grief states. And people also have profound realizations when they're wildly in love or like, you know, just on having the happiest moment of their life. And there's something, there's something that we touch there that's important. Um, what did you find, you know, in your practice, like when it comes to these stickier or more challenging sides of um, accessing joy is, are there certain things you've found soften the process or like create more space? 
Yeah. Um, I think part of it, and this is, I think this is just true about astrology in general, this piece of actually both of the things I'm going to say are just about astrology in general. The first one is um, having someone else um, with you speak your story with new words, I think just helps people in general be like, oh, the way that I move through the world, the way that I seek joy, what makes me feel joy, what, how I define fun and how light or heavy it needs to be at any given moment, like what it looks like for me to create, what it means for me to be creative, the way that I do it is not just okay, but beautiful and possible and has already given me these things. I think that lightens the load immediately. Um, and then, and that part of that is like the, something you were talking about earlier, which is like getting into the mechanics of it, um, trying to understand kind of how it operates, which maybe is sort of like summoning Daedalus into this part of the, the story. Um, but I think the other piece is I'm pretty much always encouraging people to relate to the planets as people in session and talk to them about it, whether it's like the ruler of the fifth house or the planets inside the fifth house. They have so much to tell us about how we do this part of our life and um, knowing what truly brings you joy and how you make things that didn't exist before is a really good thing to know whether you're able to act on them now or not. Um, it's, it's a pretty magical toolkit, I would say. I love that. Um, yeah, I'm also just feeling for anyone that is looking at their chart and is like, I don't have planets in the fifth house. They do still have a fifth house story. Yes. Yeah. I have seen a lot of clients actually who don't have any planets in the fifth house. Um, and I don't, even though I mentioned some asteroids earlier, actually, that's like a whole other project that I want to do. I, I actually haven't been working that much with the asteroids in these readings because there's already so much to cover in an hour without them. Um, but that's a story. Like I, I do want to do a, a sort of research project on them. Um, but um, if you don't have anything in the fifth house, you are still a fifth house person. Like everyone is a fifth house person. You have a sign on the cusp of the fifth house that tells us a lot. And then you have a planet that is the steward of that space, the custodian of that space and where they're located, their sign, who they're chatting with in the chart, all of that comes into play when we talk. So, um, right. Or even it took if, me a while into my astrology practice to appreciate that, you know, mm -hmm. like, uh, planetary rulers of houses. I did spend several years, like not even taking that into account at all. Yeah. Um, and you can do that, but then to add that in, I, you know, I get that a lot more from Hellenistic, not that people don't do it with evolutionary. Um, but yeah, people will ask like, what if I don't have planets and houses and there's still a huge story happening. Oh, definitely. And, um, there is, there's also like thinking about the just the fact that the trine between your ninth, fifth, and first is that supportive flow inside your chart, regardless of where planets are. 
that that elemental conversation happening there. Mm. These are the two houses that are doing a kind of like Jupiter style supporting capacity growing of the life all the time. So even if like all three of those houses are empty, there's still something happening there, in my opinion. Um, That is part of how we answer the question of like, what is currently making my life feel vibrant? And so back to Ariadne Mm. and maybe other related characters, what would you want to share with us about that myth? Oh, man. Um, I, I love Ariadne so much, I'm not even sure where to start. I mean, I suppose... Um, so our, our oldest records of both Dionysus and Ariadne go back to, I don't want to miss say this. I think it's like the 15th or 14th century BCE. Um, so like we're talking, this is, these are some ancient figures and they probably predate that. It's just that we have written record of them. And, um, the records are often, um, like supply lists or like um, inventory for whatever reason. And um, I think it's that's because that's what they needed records for. And what we know from those is that um, there's offerings you need to give that's part of the inventory. And um, it was to, some, there's, a, there's two lines that mean a lot to me that like stopped me in my tracks as I was reading um, and doing research, which is, to all the gods, or maybe to the gods give honey, to the mistress of the labyrinth give honey. And it is impossible to me that the mistress of the labyrinth isn't Ariadne, who like this is found on Crete. She's a Minoan princess at her like sort of human form, but there's so much evidence that points to the fact that she's a goddess and that is how I experience her as well. Um, and she is a ancient Minoan goddess who is simultaneously like a subterranean yet astral lunar figure who complements um, Dionysus quite well Um considering that although he's often associated with Jupiter, he's actually a solar deity. Um, and so we have this, we have that are two luminaries in the two of them, which like makes me have like tears in my eyes. Um, but with her myth, I mean, we get the, she's the one who knows the way through the labyrinth and she's known also for dancing. Her dancing grounds are said to be right above the labyrinth. Um, and, and it seems to be that from like a mystery right perspective, there was never any labyrinth. It's that her dance is the labyrinth. It's a winding dance of multiple people holding hands that move in these maze-like forms that actually gets them into a trance state. Um, and she is, she's our, like our dancing goddess of stars and earth. And I love her tremendously. Wow, that really touches me. Like, I didn't know that about her, and that just sent me making all these associations. Thank you. You're so welcome. Yeah, it's beautiful to see your connection to these myths. And um, 
the part about Ariadne that I was more familiar with was her um, helping Theseus oh, yeah. with the task to slay the Minotaur at the heart of this labyrinth. Yep. Um, and that people were not able to accomplish that task. They would either get killed by the Minotaur or they would, you know, somehow just lose themselves in the maze and die there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Ariadne has this idea to give this like magic thread, um, or I don't know if it was magic, if it was just a thread, you know, but to um, give him a, a thread or a string so that he can trace his way through the labyrinth. Mm-hmm. Um, so she represents this kind of strategic creative intelligence also. Um, but it connected me to this movie that I loved in childhood, which was like the Goblin Princess. And there is like an underground kind of place with all these goblins and creatures and whatnot. And Irene, Princess Irene, is given like a magic thread by a, yeah, and that's like what helps her get through. Um, And so I think that even that um, symbol, like now I'll see it in films too of like a ball of yarn. It's like, here's how you find your way out. Um, that the myth is referred to a lot in art and culture without necessarily naming Ariadne, but it's when I see the code, you know, of like a ball of yarn or like that idea of a string that's going to help you trace your way back or breadcrumb trail, whatever it is, like those are all kind of Ariadne signals to me. They definitely are. And that idea of the thread too is not just like there's this strategy, but there's also that tie into the fates and like the idea of weaving and um, yeah, there's a lot of different deities and figures connected to that. And I think that we have to include Ariadne in that when we talk about weavers of fate and fortune and um, our own lives and storytelling, all of that is um, it's hard for me to even talk about stories without talking about weaving, which even though I'm not like a knitter or a textile artist, like it's just, it's, it's woven into the way we talk about storytelling. And I think that thread, she gives Theseus a sword and the thread. And I think she also gives him directions, which suggests that she has spent a lot of time in the labyrinth by herself with her half brother, who's a monster. Um, and that like makes me i know like so much like um i guess like the equivalent of like fan fiction has been written about imagining those times when it was just her like for whatever reason deciding that that's where she wanted to spend her time because otherwise how does she know her way through um he can the thread will get him back but the thread's not going to get him to the minotaur so she also had to have that labyrinth wisdom as well Mm. Yeah, I didn't know that either. There's the part about her too where she's, um, after she helps Theseus, she's, I guess, abandoned by him. That yes. there was some, you know, romantic thing between them. And she's, there's a painting of her. Um, I forget the artist, but I saw it in London. But she's basically like off looking bereft, you know, at this other, this ship that's sailing, you know, it's gone, it's going off into the distance. And Dionysus is approaching her and like, you know, is already like, I guess, seducing her, wanting to be with her. But she's focused on this loss. And I love that symbolism, too, in the sense of like the way that a loss um, or that thing that we're grieving 
is like just on the other side of like Dionysus beckoning us to this like, you know, connection to life again. And that we don't necessarily see it when we're focused on our grief, you know, but it's like literally right there knocking at the door. Oh, Serena, that gives me chills. Yes. So she is most famous for two things, her thread and being the beautiful woman bereft on a seaside coast. Like that is, that's who she is. That that scene has been painted many times. Um, and I'm always cranky because even though that scene is beautiful and like the symbolism is, I've actually never appreciated it nearly as much as just now you describing it. But I always want the next scene. I want to see if there are a couple, but like, I want to see her getting like thinking that she lost this guy and ending up with a God who is this like androgynous revelry. There's like leopards around him who want to hang out. And like, there's all these water nymphs who want to attend to her. Like all, her life just changed like twice back to back so quickly, actually three times leaving her homeland with some guy and then getting abandoned by said guy and then having a God propose to her. Like all of that happened in rapid succession. And um, I, I just think like one of the reasons why I have always been so fascinated by her is, is I was like, what kind of character would a person have to have for Dionysus to drop everything and decide he wants to make you his like primary person? Like who would you have to be for that to happen to you? Um, and like, who is this person? I have to know who she is. And I've been searching for her ever since. So what have you found? Um, I have found this it's very um, strange creature because she is clearly astral. Um, she her crown that Dionysus gives her up on their wedding is up in the sky. Um, we have a constellation of her crown, and she, the Minotaur's name is Asterion, which means starry one. Um, so there's astral stuff all over, but she's also so earthy and connected to this vegetation god and she's surrounded by water as well. She just feels like she's everywhere. It's, it's almost one of the reasons why it's delicious and difficult to get one's arms around her is because I feel like she's so huge and old in so many ways. Um, so yeah, I just, I think, and I think her, you're right about her symbolism being all over um, art, like it, in, it, in literal ways of the scene of her um, on Naxos, the island, but also her imagery and her story show up without naming her constantly. She's everywhere. I like something that, you know, you had shared in our session when we were talking about this myth of kind of the connection between just being in an ecstatic state and somehow this like opportunity for love shows up at the shore mm -hmm. um, and like the kind of 
invitation for love and adventure that comes from ecstasy, right? Mm -hmm. And I like thinking about that um, because there's a lot of people that are looking for their partner. There's the pursuit of looking for love. And I think that there's this thing that people say of like, oh, it happens like when you stop looking for it. But what are you doing when you've stopped looking for it? Yeah. Um, and I think there's an invitation inside of that Dionysus and Ariadne contemplation of one, following the thread, like mm -hmm. going where life is taking you. And two, being in relationship with ecstasy and joy. Because um, if you're seeking, if you're on the thread of seeking, um, you know, your dream life, then why not be on the in the dream? Like yeah. that would be. I think that's really good guidance. And um, I, th you know, there are stories of Ariadne being um, like the proto-initiate into the Dionysian rites. Like we are meant to follow in her footsteps. She's the one. We we invite Dionysus um, to possess us, to take, um, to be like in the like the idea of enthusiasmos, like to be ensouled with the god. Enthusiasmos. Um, wow. <laughs> um, and so our, even though like there are virtues of Dionysus that I would like to um, encourage in myself, really Ariadne is the character that we follow through this. And I think that she has so much to teach us with regard to both like grieving at the shore side, but also being ready, <laughs> being like, because she, she turns it around very, very quickly. And I don't mean that everyone needs to turn anything around quickly, but she has an openness that has the same openness that has her grieving at the shore is the same openness that um, has her fully accepting this crown of flowers um, from right. the God of joy. That feels like a testament to what you were sharing earlier about how joy is a complex space that coexists with grief also. Absolutely. Um, so I want to also get back to the 11th house thread of what that is in relationship to the fifth or how you, like what you learned about that axis from doing these readings. Yeah. Um, one thing that I talk about a lot with people is the fact that the fifth house is under the horizon line. And right now, I feel like there is a lot of pressure to like my fifth house stuff doesn't count, whether it's creativity or joy, unless it's somehow visible or a commodity or something. And um, I try to encourage people that like if we're taking the astrology seriously, that the fifth house is hidden like it you can toss the fifth house stuff up over the horizon line into the 11th where it can be caught by people who want to receive it but it still counts if it's in the fifth like it's still it's still joy it's still art it's still um generative eroticism um that said, like a lot of us do want that stuff to be seen too. And I think the 11th is a place where we find the other festival goers and the people who are going to um, help us hopefully create spaces where we can lose ourselves a little. Because what a relief to occasionally lose yourself. 
um, and to be caught again, you know, to not be trying to stitch your body back together by yourself. So that's how I've been seeing them together. Because it's just an hour long reading, we really do tend to like hang in the fifth the whole time. But um, the 11th is definitely taking on uh, those types of tones versus just like the kind of general 11th house signification that I've had for most of my practice, which is like like-minded people, um, networks, big groups of friends, crowds of people that sort of have something in common. Um, I've never felt super satisfied with that delineation, even though it's useful. I want like, I want more, I want more, um, I want some more specificity in certain ways and, and how it connects to everything else. And I'd love to hear from you, like how you think about that access. Yeah, I love what you shared about the festival goers and the pleasure of losing oneself and being supported and stitching oneself back together. Because I think also like the fifth and 11th house have a lot of positive um, associations. Um, I, you know, related to them for several years from an evolutionary astrology perspective, which brings like Leo and the fifth house together in terms of having similar significations and 11th mm -hmm. house in Aquarius. Um, but the Hellenistic, I'll get back to the EA, but Hellenistic, you know, thinking about the kind of good spirit, mm -hmm. um, of the 11th and thinking about, yeah, how it is a really, it is good fortune to have people that we relate to and people that we can go to or be safe to kind of be unraveling around and have them have some insight or way of cheering us up or, um, conversing with us that we feel put back together. Um, so it's a really beautiful image. And with the evolutionary astrology background, the 11th house has a lot of associations with um, trauma, subtle mental trauma, um, trauma carried over from prior lives. And it has this quality to it of fracturing or like soul fracturing. And within the 11th house, fifth house axis, it's, you know, the fifth house would have more of like a central like, this is my vision, this is my story, this is my identity, this is what I love, these are my desires. And not that the 11th house is always in a fractured state, there's like a genius or there's a brilliance or there's a being split off from the main way of knowing or main way of experiencing. And then also the process of integration um, that happens like after feeling like having such an out of range or bandwidth increasing or blasting experience that trauma or awakening can be. Um, but yeah, it would have that kind of like, it's friends, it's community, it's also trauma, like it would all be in there um, in the 11th house. But I feel like the way that it opposes the fifth um, is a really clear connection between joy and trauma and how I think that sometimes when people, um, you know, and I've had this experience myself too, like after being really freshly rattled by something and like having gone through something traumatic understanding that um I could be in my own world at certain times and like create like my own joyful life um and find my way back into integrating with the greater world and community but that trauma even became a portal to the underworld of like I need to create my own space to like reconstitute myself 
but also in that isolation or in that kind of break from the known encountering parts of my soul or parts of my creativity that maybe I wouldn't have had things all just been going smoothly. Um, I also think about art as a healing, you know, like making art with one's life and the way that we weave in the things that have been traumatic or difficult or our grief, like the way that we integrate it and relate to it can be beautiful. Um, and that when we exclude it, when we cast it out, uh, we feel, you know, locked away from parts of ourselves. So I think of like, yeah, bringing in that kind of like fractured or split apart or being ripped apart kind of Dionysian images from an 11th house, like EA context and how creativity is a source of resolving or like mm. being with that. Ooh. Yeah, I, I love hearing your perspective because I'm not familiar with EA basically at all. I'm coming mostly from um, a Hellenistic and then hodgepodge plus perspective. Um, and you, you connected something for me by talking about the EA approach that I hadn't thought of before. Um, which is the, if the 11th is a place where like things are, you know, like we go out into the world and things get fractured and then there's like the retreat into the underworld fifth house place. Um, and we find refuge there. There is something between, um, the way that art and creativity and internalized, like an internal or like quieter version of joy maybe can be supportive. But at some point there is that um, need to go back out into the 11th, that there is this like back and forth across these two houses. Um, and I wonder if it's the going back and forth between these two houses, the good spirit place, you know, Jupiter rejoices in the 11th, Venus rejoices in the fifth, like we have the, the benefics here that like that moving across and needing to kind of oscillate between them or like move between them on a regular-ish basis um, is part of how we do a certain amount of um, healing and hurting, but by moving between them, there's something there that like, there's like a circuitry that gets. Um, right. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm making like a hand gesture that's saying the word that I want to say, but I can't think of it, but I'm glad you know it's what like I mean. recursive or, yeah. you know, it has me thinking too of like, yeah, when people are processing some trauma, how often are they going back to like inner child work to like go mm -hmm. to the root of it, which brings us to the fifth or, absolutely, you know, how we might have different approaches of like facing, you know, what's hurting and like being with something traumatic and trying to say like heal it or yeah, like work with it versus when we just pursue joy and fun and as a result, um, like reclaim fragmented parts of ourself. Um, and I remember too, I had this moment, I was like abroad in Bali and having a really difficult time. It was beautiful there, but I was having a terrible time. And I like passed this like beautiful flower bush and I was like, I can't even like take in this beauty like it's not even touching me and like the very next day I was at a workshop where they're like okay and now we're going to do a somatic trauma healing exercise 
And like suddenly I got all this whole wave and rush of like all these positive memories flooding me and this like openness to joy. And I was like, these things are very connected. Um, and yeah, like how sometimes when we want to pursue joy, um, we can go straight for it. We might have that capacity or opportunity. And sometimes there's these layers that are like, there's some level of trauma that's making it really difficult to feel into that space. And so kind of navigating our own psychological labyrinth of, can I just go do something fun, you know, or do, is there something in front of it that I need to face first? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that there's often in, in the client work that I've done on the fifth, I do feel like there's a often a resistance. Like when I talk to people who come, not because they're like, um, I'm just curious, but people who are coming because they're like, I really struggle with these things for these reasons, or I don't know why. Often it's, I don't know why. And it's often, I was um, really creative as a kid, but I've lost the, my way with it somehow. And I don't know anymore. Or like, it's really hard for me to let myself experience pleasure for its own sake. Um, it has to be like for a purpose or only once I get the task list done. And, and, and I, um, we often end up talking about the ways in which joy felt unsafe because play itself is vulnerable. You're letting your guard down in order to participate in play and to bring the myth in a little bit. Like when the Zagreus Dionysus is ripped apart by the Titans, the way that they distract him is by giving him toys. Like there is this um, letting one's guard down that needs to feel like it's possible in order to access some of this stuff. Um, And that's not always accessible or there are memories that make it feel like it's not accessible and that's a huge part of what we end up talking about and feeling through as we kind of pull on the threads of where we are in that reading wow yeah that makes a lot of sense um what did you notice like if you want to share like anything opening or shifting in your own creative process or life as a result of spending so much time with the fifth house oh my god um it is because um i tend to pick offerings that i'm also working through so much has changed um i have been working less. Um, Dionysus, one of his um, names has to do with like freeing us from care and um, not caring for other people, quite the opposite, but our our burdens, laying down our burdens. And um, as someone with um, connections between the sixth and the fifth house in my chart, it's hard for me not to mix up pleasure and labor. Like what I'm, what I'm going to do for fun is work. Um, which thankfully in the last year I was able to switch full time to doing this work. So I do enjoy my work, which is great. Um, at the same time, it's never been more challenging to do something for its own sake. Cause everything's connected to everything else now. 
And um, I'm so grateful that I've been having these conversations with so many curious and present and incredible people because it's helped me sort of like remember my version of fun, which is not very light. It's still my chart. It's still Saturn, but there's, um, yeah, there's a lot more play now and more coming. So I'm, I'm so grateful, but it's tough. Like I always am like slamming into stories that I don't believe anymore intellectually, but my heart isn't ready to let go of them yet. And we're, we're working through it, but, um, yeah, it's been, it's been huge. It's like defined the year for me. Amazing. I really love that you expanded this personal inquiry into like a shared project uh, that you invited people into. And I love that model for working also because I think it feels really alive to produce offerings that are also working us. Mm-hmm. Um, because, yeah, we're just we get to be in the adventure and the initiation of it. Definitely. And I suspect that they would work us even if we thought we were done with them. You know, I'm sure like, too. Like, and when are you done? If I waited until I was like, I have mastered the fifth house, I would never give this reading. It would never happen. Right. <laughs> so um, no, I feel that because sometimes people, I feel like have this idea that they need to be an expert before they offer something. And yes. there is a truth about offering things that are within your range. But um, it's more fun to me to like put something out that's like really alive in me than to try to think of something that I've already like come full circle about at a moment in time and be like, I'll just dig it back up and make it into something. Um, Is there anything else that you feel called to share with us? I'm sure there is, um, but nothing is coming I mean, it's almost like too many things are coming to mind and no one is stepping forward loud, like louder than the rest. So I think we can leave it there unless you have more questions. <laughs> They're like, <for> me. <laughs> maybe think of the 11th house versus the fifth and it's like a crowd and like, where's the person <laughs> yes. in the spotlight? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, um, how can people find you on social media and like um, get a reading from you, et cetera? Any offerings you want us to know about? Um, so people can find me and my work and quite a bit of writing, um, at third hyphen sister.com third is spelled out. And then I'm on social media on Twitter and Instagram. Um, my handles are on Twitter are Meg Kane and, um, on Instagram, I am Meg dot third sister. Um, I do have a few more spots open for January. I don't know when this is airing, but I'll also be opening for February very soon. Great. Yeah, we'll leave those links in the notes. Um, I think this will be out by February at the latest, if not earlier. Cool. Um, And yeah, highly recommend if you're listening. It was really impactful, um, like beautiful experience. Thank you so much, Sabrina. And thank you for joining me and sharing all of this wealth of knowledge and myth and story. Um, yeah. And like sharing your process with us, this has been like a really wonderful thing to witness participate in. I'm so glad that we got to talk about it. Thank you so much for inviting me. And I know like in our session, we had wanted to talk more about the myths and I'm so happy we had an opportunity to do that. So thank you so much. Same. Thank you.
Thank you for listening. If you've been enjoying this podcast and you have something to say about it, I would love to read your review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes. If you take a screenshot of your review before you click submit and email it to me at sabrina at monarchastrology.com, I'll send you a resource library about creating and elevating your reality. This library contains several hours of content about the intersection between kind of create your reality teachings and astrology. And it includes one of my favorite talks I've ever given called Leo and the Evolution of Alternate Realities. Thank you so much for listening. Your reviews really support the growth of this podcast, as well as your word of mouth when you share this podcast with friends or post it to your stories on Instagram and tag me at Sabrina Monarch. Thank you so much. Thank you.